Chapter Five, Part Two of the Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boulderwood. Chapter Five, Part Two. To this day, Blount declares that he never enjoyed a better meal. He certainly never had a better appetite and as the sun rising higher in the heavens irradiated the meadows and hurrying water of the creek the brilliant green of the opening buds of the great elms and poplars that fringed that streamlet he admitted that the landscape was almost worthy of the memorable meal after a leisurely assimilation of the journals of the day and a smoke in the veranda he ordered the cob to be brought round being of opinion that gentle exercise would be advantageous to his legs which the last day's work might have tried unfairly. They certainly had puffed, but there was no sign of lameness, and his owner decided that daily exercise would meet the complaint. Hearing that the sergeant was at home, he resolved to look up that gallant officer and gather from him what rumour had asserted as to Little River Jack, the O'Haras, Mr. Bruce, and lastly himself, if rumours there were. He found the ex-guardian of the peace, and, so to speak, warden of the marches, weeding his garden, a trim, well-ordered plot, which, like the remainder of his little property, was a standing object lesson to the surrounding homesteads. Putting down his hoe, the veteran advanced with an air of great cordiality, and welcomed him. "'Say, you have won back for the debatable land, as they called Nickel Forest in my youth.' There have been wars and rumours of wars, but the week passed. Warrants to be issued for Phelim and Patrick O'Hara, and one little river Jack, went by the name of John Carter. Forby Tumberumba Dick, and a man known as Jack Blunt, alias Valentine Blount, seen in company with the above on the 20th of August last. Aye, it was openly said, and I was looking to see you arrive, maybe with the bracelets on. What think ye of that?' that i should have had good cause of action for false imprisonment answered the tourist but why didn't they issue the warrants maybe they were no that sure about the evidence there's necessity ye ken that there should be full and ample proof in the duffing cases as the country people call em a bush jury winna convict as long as there's a link short of the crown prosecutor's chain of evidence and was there I feel personally much obliged to the Department of Justice for their scruples, which do them honour. Well, ye ken, though Mr. Bruce and Miranda de depose on oath that he saw an E.H.B. Bullock his property, with a J.C. brand but freshly on, there was no witness who saw John Carter or any other cow do it, or the like. He missed cattle, sure enough, and Black Paddy led him and two troopers to a deserted claim known as the Lady Julia, near which was a stockyard, with fresh cattle tracks, bithin and oot. They didna gang in the lane, a body kens that, but wha saw them gang in or gang oot. Strong presumption, clear circumstantial evidence, but next to no proof. Say the arm of the law was strayed. A great pity, wasn't it? Really, it seems like it. Fine paragraphs lost to the local press. Capture of cattle stealers a leading butcher implicated, a gentleman lately from England arrested, damages laid by him for false imprisonment at £10,000, 
Really, I might have bought a station with the money, and been rich and respected. Made a big squatter, Dick told me, had begun that way. But he had stolen the cattle, or sheep, and served sentence for it before he turned his talents to better purpose. Dick's not to listen to, replied the sergeant, nor nay that kind of folk. They'll tell less by the bushel, gin ye stay to believe em. When all's said and done, laddie, you're well o'er it. You'll maybe take heed of the chance companions another time. Very possibly, sergeant. It does appear as if I have been a trifle imprudent. I must curb my spirit of adventure, which has led me astray before now. I nearly got shot in Spain through joining a band of smugglers. They were such joyous dogs. And Manuela, ah, what eyes, what a figure. It was rash, no doubt. I must ask for references another time. <laughs> Mr. Blount treated the escape which he perceived he had narrowly missed of being hauled before the bar of justice with apparent levity, but in his own mind he was conscious that affairs might have taken a permanently disagreeable turn and seriously compromised him socially, however it ended. What would the Bruce family think of him? What could Imogen believe? Either that he shared the ill-gotten gains of the O'Haras and their associates, or that he was so inconceivably dense and unsuspicious that any amount of dishonesty might go on before his face without his being aware of it. On either assumption he was between the horns of a dilemma adjudged guilty of folly or dishonesty. His vexation was extreme. However, he exhibited no outward sign of remorse, and concluded his visit by thanking the sergeant for his information, and begging him to join him at dinner if he had no lingering suspicion of his moral character. "'Na, na, I put my hale trust in thee, if matters look at as black again. The glint in the grey wing were anna given thee for naught.' Will a mare's cracks before us said and done? The spring's to be early, I am thinking. The season was more advanced than when Blount first entered Bunjil. The warmer weather had made it apparent that the year had turned. The meadow grasses had grown and burgeoned. The English trees always planted near the older settlements in Australia, many of them the growth of half a century, were nearly full-leaved, putting to shame with their brilliant colouring and opulent shade the duller hues of the primeval forest the waterfowl in flocks flew and dived and swam in the great lagoons which marked the ancient course of the river the cattle and horses browsing in the lanes and vacant spaces were sleek of skin and fair to behold all nature spoke of abundance of pasture in this fertile valley there was no hint of the scarcity which once at any rate within the recollection of men then living, had been known to overspread the land, when this very spot, now running over with plenteousness, the vine, the olive, the fig, peaches and plums, apples and pears, in full leaf and promise of fruit, was bare and dust, the creek even dry, between the great water-holes for half a mile at a stretch. Mr. Blount, on returning from his ride, found a large assortment of letters and newspapers awaiting him. Among them was a telegram marked Urgent. This bore the postmark of a neighbouring colony, and had been forwarded by private messenger at some expense. Thus ran the message. Hobart, 20th. 
Come over at once. No delay. Great news. Credit Unlimited, Imperial Bank, Melbourne. Walking straight into his bedroom, he threw the letters on the counterpane of his bed, and drawing forward a chair, proceeded to open his correspondence seriatim. After noting date and signature, he returned the greater portion of them to their envelopes, postponing fuller examination to a more convenient season. The last two, which bore the postmark of the nearest post office to Maronda, he retained. Of its name he was aware, having heard the ladies asking that the post-bag should be delayed for a few minutes on account of their unfinished letters. He did not linger over the first, addressed in a strong, clear, masculine hand, there was no difficulty in mastering its tone and tenor. Sir, I feel justly indignant that I should have extended hospitality to a person who, while assuming the outward appearance of a gentleman, has proved by his conduct to be unworthy of recognition as such. As an associate of the O'Hara brothers and two others, who, under pretense of mining, having concert with a well-known gang of cattle-stealers, preyed on my herd and those of neighbouring stations for the last two years you have laid yourself open to grave suspicion i cannot be expected to believe that you were although a new arrival so unsuspicious as to have no knowledge of their dishonest ways in a stockyard near the claim branding as well as concealment of stolen cattle had been carried on you were present when i pointed out my e h b bullock on which a brand new on which a new brand had been recently placed you knew that i suspected dishonesty in that neighbourhood was it not your plain duty to have informed me of any suspicious proceedings not only did you fail to do so but while accepting my hospitality you suppressed the fact of your living as a mining mate with the o'hara brothers and other suspicious characters as well as that the notorious little river jack was a member of the same precious company. I believe that warrants have been applied for in the instance of one of my neighbours. Should you find that you are included in the arrest, you will only have yourself to thank for incredible folly or criminal carelessness as to the distinction between meum and tuum. I remain faithfully yours, E. Hamilton Bruce very faithfully indeed quoth the recipient of this plain-spoken epistle under the circumstances i don't wonder at the wrath of this squire of the south it is but too natural fancy a game-preserving english country gentleman discovering that a recent guest free of croquet and morning walks with his charming wife and daughters had been sojourning with poachers partaking peradventure of his host's own stolen pheasants six months hard would have been the best and lightest penalty that he could have dropped in for but for having a friend or two at court or out of it valentine blount late of her majesty's f o by courtesy the honourable and so forth might have done time for the heinous offence of having concealed on his person certain beefsteaks a very keen jest it was like to have been certain beefsteaks and portions of the undercut for the possession of which he could give no reasonable account moreover defied the peace officer to take them from him this of course is bordering upon a joke and a very keen jest it was like to have been maybe yet for all i know what darned fools men are sometimes this i take to be a feminine superscription 
the contents less logical and perhaps perhaps only more emotional and less lenient of sentence i wonder what mrs bruce and the fair imogen think of the agreeable stranger i have been thus described ere now who tarried within their gates i feel distinctly nervous however here mr blount carefully opened the envelope and was slightly reassured by the dear mr blount which introduced the subject matter we are afraid imogen and i that edward has written you an extremely disagreeable not to say threatening letter he was furiously angry would hear neither reason nor explanation when the o'hara stockyard mystery was unveiled you must confess that explanation was difficult not to say embarrassing for your friends we are certain that there has been some great mistake which needs clearing up without delay it will never do for you to lie under this accusation false as we believe it to be of living with dishonest people and with the knowledge of their malpractices of course you may not know that no men are more artful in hiding their true characters than are bush cattle and horse thieves or duffers to use a vulgar expression they are not coarse ruffians on the contrary very well-mannered hospitable even polite when compared with the labourers of other lands good-natured and most obliging outside of their profession indeed i heard a story from a nice old priest that visited our station when i was a girl which explains much a bushman was dilating on the noble qualities of a comrade jack's the best-hearted chap going good-natured why he'd lend you his best horse if you were stuck for one on the road if he hadn't a horse handy why he'd shake one for you rather than let you leave the place afoot of course the situation looks bad on the face of it but imogen and i will never believe anything against your honour you have a friend at court perhaps too besides this there was a tiny scrap inside the envelope apparently pushed in after the letter had been closed don't believe you knew anything imogen mr blount read this soothing epistle twice over and put away the scrap in his pocket-book very carefully having done this he sat down and wrote hard until summoned to lunch after which he packed up carefully all his belongings leaving out only such as might be wanted for an early morning start he was more grave than usual at that comfortable meal and it was with an effort that he replied to sheila's query whether he'd received bad news not bad no only important which comes almost to the same thing you have to think over plans and make up your mind perhaps to start off at a moment's warning which is always distressing oh nonsense said sheila who seemed in better spirits than usual i often wish i were a man how i would wire in when there was anything to do even if it was only half good men do too much thinking i believe if they'd only ride hard at the fence wherever it is they'd get over or through it and have a clear run for their money but suppose they came a cropper and broke a leg an arm or their neck as i see one of your steeplechase riders did at flemington the other day what then oh a man must die some time replied the cheerful damsel who looked indeed the personification of high health abounding spirits and as much courage as can be shown by a woman without indiscretion and you can get through nine times out of ten the great thing is to go at it straight kindness in another's woes courage in your own that's what gordon says who is gordon may i ask 
"'Why, Adam Lindsay, of course, our Australian poet. "'Haven't you heard of him? I thought everybody had.' "'And do you read him?' "'Yes, every Australian man, woman and child, if they're old enough, knows him by heart.' "'I think I've caught the name. Was he born here? Is he dead? "'Perhaps you've heard of Mark Twain?' said Sheila scornfully, who seemed to be in rather a reckless humour. "'Well, he is. No, he was not born here, more's the pity, for he knows us cornstalks better than we know ourselves. He was the son of a British officer. The family's Scotch. I'm half Scotch. That's partly why I'm so proud of him. But it would have been all the same whatever country owned him. I find my tongue's running away with me, as usual. The unruly member, as the Bible says.' "'But you take my tip, Mr. Blount. "'Never change your mind when you pick your panel. "'That's Gordon again. "'It's the real straight griffin, with horse or man. "'This is a wonderful country. "'This is a wonderful country, and you're a wonderful young woman. "'I haven't time to analyse you just now, "'for my affairs, which I had intended to treat to a short holiday, "'are conspiring to hurry me up. "'At what hour can I leave in the morning? "'Tomorrow?' said the girl, her face changed. You don't mean to say you're going away tomorrow? Sorry to say I must. You saw that I got a telegram, and if I don't clear, as your people say, I may lose thousands, perhaps a fortune. The coach goes at six sharp, and gets to the railway station at the same hour the next morning. You'd like breakfast first, I suppose. It's too early to ask you to have it ready. Anything will do. Oh, I dare say. "'You've had some decent meals here, haven't you? "'Never better in my life. "'Well, you'll go away tomorrow, fit and ready, "'for as long a day's work as ever you did. "'It's almost a pity you're having the sergeant to dine. "'However, he'll not stay late. "'I'll send over and take your coach tickets. "'You'd better have everything packed and ready this afternoon. "'Cobb and Company wait for nothing and nobody.' "'There's no doubt,' Mr. Blount told himself, that the conditions of life in Her Majesty's colonies tend to the development of the individual with a completeness undreamed of in our narrow and perhaps slightly prejudiced insular life. What a difference there is between this young woman and a girl of her rank of life in any part of Britain! What energy, intelligence, organising power she has! I feel certain that she could rally a wavering regiment on a pitch, drive a coach, ride a race, or swim a river, in fact, do all sorts of things as well as, I better than, the ordinary man. This is going to be a great country, and the Australians are great people. Arts of war and peace and so on. How good-looking she is, too. Concluding his reflections with this profound observation, which showed that in spite of his subjective turn of mind, the primary emotions still held sway. Mr. Blount betook himself to his packing, with such concentration that by the time he had finished his letters nothing remained of his impedimenta but such as could be easily carried out and packed in the coach while he was finishing a distinctly early breakfast. These said letters required much thought and preparation, it would appear. First there was a vitally necessary answer to Mr. Bruce's warlike communication. To this he concluded to reply as follows. Bunjil Hotel September. Dear sir, while fully admitting that appearances are against me, I think that you might with propriety have suspended judgment, if not until the offences charged against me were proved. 
or at least until you had heard my explanation which i give seriatim number one as a matter of fact i did live with the o'haras and two other men on the lady julia claim they were hard-working and well-conducted miners for all that i saw they might have been the most honest men in australia i knew that cattle were brought to the stockyard late and taken away early i judged it to be the custom of the country and accepted their statement that they were bought and sold in the ordinary way i was cautioned not to go near the yard for fear of frightening them i did not see a brand or look for one nor should i have known its significance if i had as to the o'haras and their mates whatever might have been their previous history no men could have worked harder or more regularly they could not have actively assisted in the cattle trade without my noticing it number two that i did not inform you of my position in the claim it would certainly appear to have been my duty to do so under ordinary circumstances after i knew of your suspicions but the circumstances were not ordinary and the question arises should i have been justified in betraying for that would have been the nature of the act the suspicious merely suspicious circumstances which i observed during my involuntary comradeship with these men i had eaten their salt been treated with respect and in all good faith shared their confidences moreover and this is the strongest point in my defence the man known as little river jack of his real name of course i am ignorant certainly saved my life on the dizzy and narrow pass known locally as razorback of that i feel as certain as that i am writing at this table in another moment my frightened horse unused to mountain travelling would have assuredly fallen or thrown himself over the precipice which yawned on either side of him while i was equally unable either to control him or to dismount by this bushman's extraordinary quickness and resource i was enabled to do both was i to give information which would have driven him into the hands of the police as a citizen i may have been bound to assist the cause of justice but as a man i felt that i could not bring myself to do so three for the rest i dissociated myself without more delay than was absolutely necessary to collect my effects and return the borrowed horse from such compromising company i was offered my share not a very small amount of the last gold won but declined it and riding late reached this hotel at midnight on the day we parted i heard that the senior constable of the nearest police station had instructions to take out warrants for the persons referred to including myself but for some alleged defect in the evidence that course was not persevered with circumstances wholly unconnected with this unfortunate affair compel me to leave to-morrow morning for tasmania i have entered fully into the case for the defendant if the jury consisting of yourself with your amiable wife and sister whose kindness i can never forget and on whose mercy i rely do not acquit me of all evil intent i can only hope that time may provide the means of my complete rehabilitation meanwhile i can subscribe myself with a clear conscience yours sincerely valentine blount having with much thought and apparent labour concocted this conciliatory epistle of which he much doubted the effect he commenced another which apparently did not need the same strain upon the mental faculties
This was addressed to Mrs. E. Hamilton Bruce, Maronda, Upper Sturt, and thus commenced. Dear Mrs. Bruce, to say that for your kindness and considerate letter I feel most deeply grateful would be to understate my mental condition lamentably. After reading Mr. Bruce's letter, it seemed as if the whole world was against me, and conscious as I am of entire innocence except of an act of egregious folly, not the first one, I may confess, which a sanguine temperament and a constitutional disregard of caution have placed to my account, my spirits were lowered to the level of despair. There seemed no escape from the dilemma in which I found myself. I stood convicted of egregious folly or dishonour with the sin of ingratitude thrown in. I could not wonder at the harsh tone of your husband's letter. What must he, what must you all, think of me, was the inexorable query. Suicide seemed the only refuge. Moral fellow de se had already been committed. At this juncture I re-read your letter, for which I shall never cease to bless the writer, and, may I add, the probable sympathiser. Hope again held up her torch, angel bright, if but with a wavering gleam. I regained courage for the rational outlook. I think I gave a sketch of my imminent peril and the rescuer to Miss Imogen as we rode away from Miranda on that lovely morning. Her commentary was that it was not unlike an incident in Anne of Geierstein, except that the heroine was the deliverer in that case. We agreed, I think, in rating the book as one of the best in the immortal series. I have fully explained the position in which I stand to Mr. Bruce in my letter, which you will doubtless see, so I need not recapitulate. I have been recalled on important business unconnected with this regrettable affair to Hobart, for which city I leave early to-morrow. Meanwhile, I trust that all doubts connected with my inconsistent conduct will be cleared up with the least possible delay, in which fullest expectation I remain very gratefully yours, Valentine Blount. The writer of these important letters, after having carefully sealed them, made assurance doubly sure by walking to the post-office and placing them with his own hands in the receptacle for such letters provided. He further introduced himself to the acting postmaster and ascertained that all correspondence, his own included, which were addressed to the vicinity of Bunjil, would be forwarded next morning soon after daylight, reaching their destination early on the following morning. "'It's only a horse-mail,' said that official. "'The bags are carried on a pack-horse,' but Jack Doyle's a steady lad, and always keeps good time. Better, for that matter, than some of the coach contractors. The rest of Mr. Blount's correspondence was apparently easily disposed of, some being granted short replies, some being placed in a convenient bag, and others unfeelingly committed to the flames. About the time when the sergeant and dinner arrived, Mr. Blount held himself to be in a position of comparative freedom from care, having all his arrangements made, and, except fate stepped in with, with special malignity, everything in train for a successful conclusion to a complicated, unsatisfactory beginning. His city address was left with the acting postmaster aforesaid. All letters, papers, etc., were to be forwarded to Valentine Blount, Esquire, Imperial Club, Melbourne. He would probably return in three weeks or a month, if not, full directions would be forwarded by his agent. 
The dinner was quite up to the other efforts of the Bunjil Hotel chef, an expatriated artist whom advanced political opinions had caused to abandon La Belle France, so he said, amid the confessions, indirect or otherwise, made during his annual breakout. But his cookery was held to confirm that part of his statement, as well as a boast that he had been chef at the Hotel du Louvre in Paris. Whatever doubt might be cast on his statements and previous history, as related by himself, no one had ever dreamed of disparaging his cookery. This being the case, and the time wanting nearly three months to Christmas, which was the extreme limit of his enforced sobriety, neither Mr. Blount nor anyone else could have complained of the banquet. Nor was the flow of soul wanting. The sergeant was less didactic than usual. He drew on his reminiscences more and more freely as the evening grew late, and the landlord contributed his quota, by no means without pith or point, to the hilarity of the entertainment. The sergeant, however, completely eclipsed the other convives by a choice experience drawn from his memory wallet, as he turned out that receptacle of tales of mystery and fear, which decided the landlord and his guest to see him home at the conclusion of the repast. This duty having been completed, Mr. Blount was moved to remark upon the fineness of the night. It was certainly curiously mild and still, quite like spring weather. Mr. Middleton looked up and expressed himself doubtfully as to its continuance. "'It's too warm to be natural, sir,' he said, "'and if I was asked my opinion, I'd say we're not far from a burst-up. Either wind or rain, I don't say which. A good way out of the common. If you're in a hurry to get to Melbourne, you were right to take your passage by Cobham Company, or you might not get away for a week.' "'I wouldn't lose a week just now for a hundred pounds.' "'Well, of course, it's hard to say, but if the creeks and rivers come down, "'as I've seen them in a spring flood, and we're close on the time now, "'there'll be no getting to Waronga in a week, or perhaps a fortnight on top of that. "'But I think, if you get off tomorrow morning, you'll just do it, and that's all.' "'When they returned, all traces of the symposium had been removed, "'and the cloth laid ready for the early breakfast, which Blount trusted nothing would occur.' to prevent him from consuming. On the plate at the head of the table, near the fireplace, was a half-sheet of note-paper, in which was written in bold characters, Dear Sir, the groom will call you at five sharp, breakfast at five-thirty, coach leaves at six, I've got you the box-seat. Yours truly, Sheila. That's a fine girl, said the landlord. "'She's got savvy enough for a dozen women, "'and as for work, it's meat and drink to her. "'The missus is afraid she'll knock herself out, "'and then we'll be teetotally ruined and done for. "'I hope she won't throw herself away on some scallywag or other.' "'Yes, it would be a pity. "'I take quite an interest in her. "'But she has too much sense for that, surely.' "'I don't know,' answered the landlord gloomily. "'The more sense a woman has, the likelier she is to fancy a fool, "'if he's good-looking.' "'That's my tip. "'Good night, sir. "'I'll be up and see you off. "'Old George will call you.' "'Oh, I shall be up and ready, thank you.' "'The landlord, however, "'having exceptional opportunities of studying human nature, "'warned old George to have the gentleman up at 5 a.m. sharp, "'which, in result, was just as well, "'for Blount, being too excited from various causes to sleep, "'had tossed and tumbled about till 3 a.m., 
when he dropped into a refreshing slumber, so sound that George's rat-tat-tat, vigorous and continued on his bedroom door, caused him to dream that all the police of the district, headed by Mr. Bruce and Black Paddy, had come to arrest him and were battering down the hotel in order to effect a capture. End of chapter 5